Well, good morning. Like OJ said, my name is Chad Buell. I'm uh, the Lake Mary uh, student minister, and uh, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to speak with you guys this morning. And um, I want to tell you about something I got to do. I recently got to uh, cross something off my bucket list that was so extraordinary, I never even put it on my bucket list. See, uh, on January 20th, I actually got to be in two places at the same time. I was in Pawnee, Indiana, the hometown of Leslie Nope, Ron Swanson, and Andy Dwyer, while I was also in Pasadena, California, at the same time. So for those of you who aren't huge fans of the show, those are all characters from Parks and Rec. And as it turns out, the Pawnee City Hall from the show is actually the Pasadena City Hall. This is what it looks like. And so as we're driving through town on the day we arrived, this building kind of stuck out to me a little bit. It was like oddly familiar. And uh, it wasn't until the next day that I found out why. See, I did that thing that you always do when you go someplace new. I asked somebody who lived there, what's the thing that I got to see while I'm here? And the guy says to me, well, are you a Parks and Rec fan? I'm like, oh, yeah, of course I am. And he's like, so he told me about the city hall. He said, uh, uh, you know, it's so cool. I, if you go over there and you look, you'll, you'll realize that that's exactly what it was. So uh, once I realized that, I had to run back there and, and take a picture. And uh, for those of you who are fans, you notice there's a white Hummer out front, which means Treat Yourself Day came early in 2018. So this trip to Pasadena, it was more than a sightseeing trip. Uh, it was actually a three-day on-site uh, youth ministry innovations training uh, with some of the brightest researchers, scholars, and theologians from Fuller Youth Institute. Uh, Summit, we got invited to be a part of that cohort because our focus is very similar to Fuller's focus. See, we want to be constantly learning and growing so that we can find uh, the, the, the best ways to engage our young people in faith conversations. See, the world is constantly changing. I know that's just a cliche that people say all the time, but that's actually true. Things are different now for teenagers than they were when I was a teenager, when y'all were teenagers. Things are different now. And so we never just want to rely on what's worked in the past. Instead, we want to be committed to investing our time and our energy into finding the right points of connection, things that are actually meaningful and ways to engage our young people. So to know where to start, Fuller's researchers had to figure out what young people were longing for on their deepest levels. And they concluded that when you get down to it, Young people are looking for the answers to three questions. Who am I? Where do I fit in? And what difference do I make? Now look, those are loaded questions because they define who we are and how we relate to the world around us. You know, when someone's asking the question, who am I? They're searching for identity. When someone asks the question, where do I fit in? They're searching for belonging. And when somebody asks the questions, what difference do I make? What they're looking for is a sense of purpose in their life. And while Fuller's research is focused on uh, people in their teens to early 20s, a quick Google search will reveal that they're not the only ones struggling with these questions. One writer that I found uh, uh, on, that, on the Google search that I did recounted writing about her own struggle with her identity as a Chinese-American woman. Now, she thought that her struggles were pretty unique to herself, and maybe they would uh, connect with other people with very similar backgrounds. But what she found was that there's this enormous search out there. There's this, there's this enormous thing going on where people uh, uh, are... Are, are looking for their identity, looking for their sense of belonging. She said that it was, um, that this pain of not fitting in seems pervasive in our society. And ultimately, she concluded by saying that it seems like we're experiencing a societal crisis of identity. Another writer declared that the greatest of human contentment is found not in the world around us, but within ourselves, in a deep self-peace that's reflected within the beauty of truly knowing that we are enough just as we are, knowing that we truly belong and knowing that it is the very uniqueness of our journey that gives meaning to every breath we're given. Now, what that statement spells out from the perspective of someone who's not a Christian is a longing for identity, belonging, and purpose. Now, sadly, while she's convinced that these are the things that give life meaning, she could only lament 
that these things are so elusive and ever-changing. And I bet if we were willing to be honest for a second, I suspect that we would have to admit that the answers to those questions are important not just to teenagers and people who write things on the internet, but to the rest of us as well. So in this series, this I Am series, we're getting to know Jesus through the words that he chose to use to describe himself. And this is the closest possible look we can get at him. It's fascinating to me to realize that while all seven of these I Am statements are representations of Jesus, they're also all representations of him in relation to us. You know, uh, in the first week, when Jesus declared, I am the bread of life, he's revealing his relation to us as the one who sustains us, the one who feeds us. Last week, when Kaylee talked about Jesus saying, I am the light of the world, Jesus is revealing himself as the light that exposes us so that we might see things as we really are. And as we'll see this morning, when Jesus says, I am the gate, he's declaring both that he is the only point of access to life, the life that we were created to live, and what that life is like. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to John chapter 10, starting in verse 7, or uh, you can follow along in the bulletin as well. John 7, 10. I'm sorry, John 10, 7. 7, 10 is probably quite different. Um, All right, here we go. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So by his own words here, Jesus is declaring that he is not just a gate, but the gate. He and he alone is the boundary line between being saved and not saved. There's no other way in. And if we take Jesus at his word here, We can't just say, well, this works for me, and maybe something else works for you. As long as you're sincere in your beliefs and your focus on love, it all points to the same thing. So we can't say that because while acquiescing to those who think that all paths lead to the same place may seem to be the nice or respectful thing to do, it's actually unloving because it puts them in peril of missing the one true gate. Now, that's not a license to be a jerk to people who aren't Christians. That would be super unhelpful. But it's a reminder of what's at stake. Jesus is saying that this is the only way in. Now, this is an invitation from Jesus. He doesn't force anyone to walk through the gate. We're free to pursue alternatives to his invitation, but they're all dead ends. Any gate that, doesn't, that isn't Jesus leads to death and destruction. Just a little you know, lightness to start off with here. Now, Jesus declares that those who, who do enter through the gate can have life to the full. The word that the NIV translates as full here, parasan, is also interpreted as abundant in other translations. Bill Mounts, one of the world's preeminent Greek scholars and author of so many of the books that I had to buy in seminary, defines parasan as in full abundance. I guess when you write the dictionary, you get to choose, and why choose to use one word when you can use two? You know, you get to, you get to set those rules for yourself. So here's the thing. What Jesus is saying here is that those who enter through the gate are say, what, I'm sorry, What Jesus is saying here is that those who enter through the gate are saved into isn't some sort of meager existence as the preferable alternative to being dead. It's life to the superlative. But the problem is these exclusivist claims like this, they chafe at us. They bump up against our culturally instilled worship of independence and self-sufficiency. And we've made individualism practically into a religion here in America. 
And claims like this, they violate our ideas about you know, what, what, what can be said, is truth exclusive or not? Our movies, our music, our advertising, they all bear witness to our romanticization of those who go their own way, those who don't ask for help and who handle everything on their own. We make, we make cowboys and explorers into our heroes. They blaze their own trail. The people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps, those are the stories that you see in the movies. And we don't want to ask for help because we've taught ourselves that asking for help is weak. So a while back, I was out with some friends. We were hanging out on a lake, tubing, and kayaking. Uh, we were all wearing superhero costumes, uh, the kind with like the molded foam mus- uh, mu- muscles. That's the word, not mushrooms, muscles. Uh, I had chosen to wear a Superman costume because Superman is awesome. Um, and at one point, while we're, while we're uh, being pulled around behind this jet ski, I got thrown off the tube, which should be no big deal for Superman or me because I'm a good swimmer. But here's the thing. When they got wet, Superman's muscles, muscles turned to mush. That molded foam basically becomes a sponge when it's in the water, and you'd be surprised how little extra weight it takes to make you no longer buoyant. And so I'm struggling with this extra weight. I'm trying to get this costume off. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, I shouldn't call for help. I can handle this on my own. And so I just keep struggling in this suit trying to get out. And, and then I had this thought about my wife. You know, not in the sappy way of like, oh, she's going to miss me. But in the way of, if I die here today and my wife finds out that I didn't ask for help, she's going to be so mad. And instead of me haunting her from beyond the grave, she would haunt me in my afterlife. It would, have been, it would have been bad. So upon that realization, I called for help. And by the time the jet ski got back, I had gotten the suit off and everything. It was fine. Like, I was never in any real danger. But it was that realization of, oh, this thing is so ingrained in me. I'm so bent on maintaining my own self-sufficiency that I was actually going to put my life in danger over that. That's crazy. Now, maybe you've never done anything quite that stupid, but... I don't think I'm alone in this self-sufficiency thing. And I'll bet if you thought about it long enough, you'd be able to come up with an example or two of how assuming you could handle something on your own or that you didn't need help or that you had to do it yourself went wrong. See, so ingrained is this self-sufficient individualistic mentality in us that it becomes the lens through which we can view everything. This can become particularly problematic in our relationship with God because Christianity, it's not about blazing your own trail to God. It's about God blazing a trail to us through Jesus and saying, follow me. These I am statements of Jesus, they do demand a binary response. The only possible answers are yes or no. You don't get to build your own gate because salvation isn't something we can accomplish on our own. Jesus didn't come find us and point us towards a wall and say, build yourself a gate. Heaven's on the other side. Part of being the gate was the fact that Jesus was willing to lay down his life to secure the grace by which we're able to walk through. It's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2, 8, when he writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If we could build our own gate, we could boast in our hard work or our abilities. We could compare our gate to other people and say, mine's better. But there's none of that for those of us whose salvation can come only through the grace of God. Now, since Jesus uses the gate as his metaphor here, when a gate represents a boundary, a dividing line between inside and outside, it'd be easy to assume that if you've already trusted Jesus for salvation, you've done everything this passage is talking about. Except, I think we can believe that Jesus is the Son of God and trust him for our salvation and be intent on living the rest of our lives for him, but not ever enter into a life of abundance. See, our cultural indoctrination is so strong that even after passing through that gate, we attempt to create abundance in our own lives using cultural answers to these spiritual questions 
of identity, belonging, and purpose. So culture dictates that our identities are bound up in performance. Basically, I am the most recent, uh, uh, I am the most recent set of results that I have accomplished. But the problem is, what happens when we don't measure up to the expectations that others set for us? The expectations that we create for ourselves. And we don't measure up to what we see in other people. You know, who am I if I don't do well in school? Who am I if I don't make the team? Who am I if I don't get into the right college? Who am I if I never get married or never have kids? Who, who was I before I had kids? And will I ever be that person again? What happens if I'm not the perfect dad? What happens if I'm not the perfect mom? Which is a question that gets even harder to answer and more uh, uh, debilitating when you look around the internet and you see all these mommy blogs that tell you that every little thing you do has a, has a huge impact and can be horrible for your, for your child. How do you overcome that? We go to work and the question becomes, who am I except a cog in this machine? And what happens to me if I don't perform at the highest level all the time? Social media makes this even worse because we have to consider our brand all the time and what this photo will say about us. You know, will the social media representation of my life measure up to everyone else's? And will my actual life ever measure up to the social media representation of it? Will people think that I'm fun? Will they think that I like the right music and read the right books? It just builds all this pressure. It attempts to answer a question that it can't answer. So I started in a new role here at Summit, which meant a bunch of added responsibilities on January 1st. And by January 2nd, I started to feel like I was behind. There were all these decisions and, and, and deadlines that I had to meet, and, and then there was this two-week period in the middle of the month where I was going to be out of the country for a big chunk of it, and then I was coming back, but I was going to be on the other side of the country. And all the while, the work just keeps going on here. Like, life keeps happening here in Orlando, and I'm trying to keep up with that while I'm all over the place. And so I started to get worried about what these people will think of me because I had sold them, these, these nice, kind people here, on the fact that I can do and, and perform at a very high level and be counted on to handle everything. I tried to make that very clear, but, but I started to worry about what if I can't live up to that? What if they start to think I'm a fraud? See, for me, achievement is a way to control who people think that I am because people like the guy who works really hard and is good at his job. And if I'm not the guy who's good at his job, then who am I? You know, the voice in the back of my mind starts to ask the question, are you still just that fat, crippled kid with glasses and a bad haircut from 25 years ago? Can you ever be more than that? Now, in my defense, those glasses would make any hipster very happy now. <laughs> but there is absolutely no redeeming the hair. I, um, I had a rat tail, and interestingly enough, all those pictures are missing. <laughs> so you'll have to leave what that looked like up to your imagination, because those are all gone for some reason. Um, Look, what we really want to know is, does anyone know all there is to know about me? And if they, if they did, would they still like me? What would happen if people found out about the hidden things in our life? And yes, I mean those secret struggles that we have with sin and other issues. What would my mom, my dad, my husband, my friends, my wife, what would they think if he, she, they, if, what would they think if they knew about this thing that I can't seem to get past? But I also mean the secret stuff that happens to us. If I tell someone what happened to me, do I have to become a victim or a survivor? Does this horrible thing that someone did to me, does that get to dictate what defines me? How do I deal with that and not let it overwhelm the rest of what makes me, me? 
It's really hard to give cultural answers to spiritual questions. When it comes to belonging, we all want to be loved, and that's not just a lyric from DC Talk. See, sociologists, they tell us that we're all wired for emotional connectivity. That's an intrinsic part of what it means to be a human. At the core, we're longing to know, do people like me for me, or do they just uh, like who they think that I am, or do they just like what I can do for them? Now, despite being an introvert, I too need to belong. Sometimes I need to belong all by myself for a while, but like I need to know on that deep level that there's a place where I'm accepted and valued as part of the group. If you want an example of how much undue uh, pressure our cultural answers can put on a relationship, consider the concept of soulmates. We set out in search of this perfect person, this person who will complete us. And when we find that other person, they ask the same thing of us. It's this transactional thing where we both have to give each other everything we've got to make the, sure that everything is perfect. You know, we talk about finding the one as if someone will come along that will make us feel loved and accepted all the time. The problem is when we ask this much of another person, there's no way that they can be all that for us. Because even the best of us are imperfect and valuable and we let people down. And not even Jack Pearson from This Is Us can live up to that standard. He's an amazing guy by all accounts, what this TV show shows of his life. He's a great guy, but even he lets people down sometimes. And the pressure that this puts on relationships, it increases until the relationship can no longer support the weight of all these things, and then they collapse. And we see it play out in our families where we expect our families to provide the validation that we don't seem to be finding elsewhere in our lives. We see it in our friendships when we, we, we leave our need to be accepted to the ever-changing winds of other people and we forget who we are by trying to make sure that we are liked by other people. When we base our answers on those ever-changing things instead of on the unchanging God, it's never going to work. Now, culture tells us that purpose is almost inexorably bound to our profession, so much so that what we do, the way that we introduce ourselves, the things that we talk about about ourselves, is what we do for work. And that makes it even harder to draw these clear boundaries between identity and purpose. I wanted to understand this search for purpose a little better from a different perspective. And so I turned where I imagine most seekers of purpose actually start. I went on Google. So I entered searching for purpose. And I was read with tons of helpful-looking results, like seven strange questions that will help you find your life purpose. Answer six questions and reveal your life purpose. If you're searching for purpose, ask yourself these five questions. I also read one that was titled, Things to Keep in Mind When Searching for Purpose, which actually hid within it four questions to help guide you to your true purpose. Someone didn't give that author the naming conventions for articles about finding purpose, apparently. So after, after reading several of these blogs and articles, I noticed a couple of things. First, you've got to hit that right range with your number of questions. If you've got too few, people don't take you seriously. You know, three questions. How could three questions possibly help you figure out your life purpose? On the other hand, finding my purpose, finding my purpose is important and all. But I ain't got time for ten questions. And while these questions didn't lead me to my true purpose, at least some were entertaining. Like, what makes you forget to eat and poop? I think that one was my favorite. It was even better when I read it for the first time and I'm scrolling through and I'm going real fast and I read it and I go, what makes you forget to eat poop? In that second before I, before I looked back up and figured out that's not what they were talking about, I, I, I had this thought, I'm like, if that's what's required, I'm out. Like, I don't need to have purpose in my life that badly. It's, it's okay. The second thing I noticed was this. 
according to these authors, purpose seems to be contingent on some complicated Venn diagrams of things like purpose and mission and profession and vocation. Now, at least one author was honest enough to say that what actually characterizes most people's search for purpose is profound disappointment. I would argue that profound disappointment that results from so many searches for purpose lies in the fact that we're asking ourselves the secret question out of fear uh, because what we want to know is, am I okay if I never do something great? Success, position, power, these things are so important to our culture that we wonder, can people who work in mundane jobs like us, can they have a purpose in life? And if we run those mundane jobs through that cultural Venn diagram that says purpose equals passion plus mission plus profession plus vocation, the answer might be no. So should no one work those jobs? Well, the reality is that some people are going to have to do those jobs. And if that's reality, then does that mean that there are people in life who are doomed to never have purpose? It's what happens when we give cultural answers to spiritual questions. There's an atheist and writer. His name was Russell Bertrand. He was the author of Why I'm Not a Christian. And he believed that religion in general and Christianity in particular were not just wrong. They were harmful because they encouraged people to live lives based on fear. However, despite this conviction, he wrote of this yearning inside him. He said, at the center of me is always and eternally a terrible pain, a curious, wild pain, searching for something beyond what the world contains, something transfigured and infinite. I do not find it. I do not think it is to be found, but the love of it is my life. When you eliminate spiritual answers, you're left with nothing but cultural answers. And those cultural answers to spiritual questions, they just don't work. Now look, I know not everyone sits around pondering these questions openly, but the truth is that oftentimes we answer these questions without ever realizing that we're doing that. Because culture, it doesn't just sit there waiting for us to come and, and ask these questions and then providing answers. It'll actually push us towards those answers when we're not looking. So if you've never asked, who am I or where do I fit in or what difference do I make, you are exposed to those questions every day. See, they come in the form of the advertising we watch that says, the you that you are right now is not good enough. But if you buy this thing or take this pill or go on this vacation, you will be awesome. Everything will be great. And they also drive our increasing attachments to social media. We post a picture of our brunch. And then we go back reflexively and check to see how many likes it got. Oh, I got 200 likes on that. I must be okay. I must be good. Now, culture tells us that these things will bring life, but science, let alone Jesus, is telling us they just don't. You know, compared to 55 years ago, Americans own twice as many cars and eat out twice as much per person. As a nation, we fill 1.8 billion, with a B, billion square feet of personal storage space. That's the storage we keep for the stuff that won't fit into our homes. The median income in the U.S. is at a record high of $59,000. But 14% of people who make over $75,000 in America feel underemployed, a designation usually reserved for people who make less than half that amount. And 16 million people in the U.S. have had some form of depression or depressive episode. And listen, I'm not saying that to shame anyone. What I'm saying is if you're struggling or hurting, you're not alone. Please don't struggle alone. Let someone know. Let us help. But what these statistics tell us in the words of David Myers, who wrote the book American Paradox, is that compared to our grandparents, we've grown up with much more influence, slightly less happiness, 
but a much greater risk of depression. Our becoming much better off over the last four decades has not been accompanied by one iota of increased subjective well-being. Why not? Because the logical end of searching for a full life and things that can never truly satisfy is some form of addiction. There's never enough money or success to fill our soul. Relationships, they collapse under the weight of trying to meet more of our needs than they can possibly meet. No job will ever validate you all the time. Giving cultural answers to spiritual questions means that life to the fullest is a constantly moving target, something we're always chasing. Because the things that we can find in culture to answer those questions, they're no substitute for what Jesus is offering us. And that means either more and more striving or more and more depression. When I think about the choice that we face between cultural answers and spiritual answers to these questions, I'm reminded of a story that I heard years ago. It's about this young girl named Jenny. Jenny was five, and her favorite thing in the whole world was her necklace of plastic pot beads. They were painted in iridescent white, and they looked a little bit like pearls. When she wore them, they made her feel dressed up and grown up, so she wore them everywhere, church, school, even to bed. Every night before bed, Jenny's dad would read her a story and then give her a hug and a kiss goodnight. One night when he finished the story, he asked Jenny, do you love me? Oh, yes, Daddy, you know that I love you. Then give me your pop beads. Oh, no, Daddy, that's silly, not my pop beads. Okay, honey, I love you, good night. And he hugged and he kissed her and sent her off to bed. Each night after story time, Jenny's dad would ask again, do you love me? And each night she'd say, oh, yes, Daddy, you know that I love you. And he would ask her for the pop beads, and she would say, oh, no, Daddy, not my pop beads. And he'd hug her, and he'd kiss her, and he'd tell her goodnight and send her off to bed. After about a week of this, Jenny stopped coming to her dad for a story and wouldn't even come kiss him goodnight. Then one night, as Jenny's dad was sitting in his chair reading his paper, she walked into the room and walked slowly over to him, and as she got close, he noticed the tears on her face. What is it, Jenny? What's the matter? He asked. Jenny didn't say anything, but she lifted her little hand to her dad, and when she opened it, there was the pop bead necklace. And with a little quiver, she finally said, Here, Daddy, you can have it. With tears gathering in his own eyes, Jenny's dad reached out with one hand to take the pop bead necklace, and with the other, he reached into his pocket. He took out a blue velvet case and pulled out a strand of genuine pearls, and he gave them to her. He'd had the pearls the whole time. He was just waiting for her to give up the cheap imitation so that he could give her the real thing. Here's the thing. Jesus will respect your independence. You don't have to walk through the gate. And you can survive without finding your identity, belonging, and purpose in him. But unless you walk through the gate, you can't live a life of true abundance. You know, if Jesus is who he says he is, we don't have to accept the cheap imitation instead of the real thing. If we enter through Jesus into the life of full abundance, we can find answers to our questions of identity, belonging, and purpose that will actually satisfy our soul. But do you actually believe that? More importantly, do you live like that's true? If we accept his invitation, we can stop attempting to find our own identity and our striving or the maintaining of a false self to mask the fear that if we were truly known, we would be rejected. Instead, we can know that no matter what we've achieved at or what we've failed at, and no matter what we see when we look in the mirror, the God who created us and who knows us better than we know ourselves says that we are his beloved son or daughter. We're bearers of his image. 
And those are the titles that matter above anything else. We can stop attempting to find our belonging in our friend group or in relationships. We can stop counting on other failable human beings to provide us a level of love and acceptance that outpaces their ability to give. Instead, we can trust that we belong to the family of God and that our acceptance is based on his unconditional love. The same unconditional love that sent Jesus to the cross to die on our behalf so that we might, by grace, cross over into a life that's even better than what we could imagine. When we accept his invitation, we can stop attempting to find our purpose and our ability to produce. Instead, we can have confidence that our purpose is tied to God's ongoing mission in the world, and that regardless of our vocation, we each have a unique calling from God and the potential to make our world a better place, whether that's through our profession or through service to others, either here in our community or globally through missions or some other way. We also are called by God to be a light in our workplace. And so there's purpose in whatever we do. Now look, I want to be clear that finding your identity and belonging and purpose in Jesus doesn't mean that work and school or relationships, they don't matter. They absolutely do. I'm just saying that when you do find your identity, your belonging, and your purpose in Jesus, when you walk through the gate, it puts those other things in perspective. So if you're here and you don't know what you believe about God, that's awesome. We are so glad you are here. Your questions and your doubts, they're so welcome here. This is a safe place. We would love for you to ask your questions. We would love for you to walk through this year of Jesus with us. Our hope and our prayer for you is that God will, over that time, reveal himself to you. Keep coming back. Keep listening. Find someone to ask your questions, whether that's a friend that you can trust who's loved Jesus for a long time, whether that's OJ, whether that's me. We would love to talk to you about these questions. We would love to sit down and have a coffee with you. I would also tell you, if you're willing, to ask God to reveal himself to you. Be open to what he might say and how he might show up in your life. Look, take as long as you need to figure that out, but no longer than you absolutely must. But you should know this. At some point, you're either going to have to take a step of faith through the gate or you're going to have to walk away from it. When you walk through that gate, you become, through grace, God's beloved adopted son or daughter. And then having been adopted, you belong to his family. Within his family, you're given a new purpose. For those of you who, have re- who, who are here who've already made a decision to follow Christ, I want to encourage you to spend some time working through the real answer you, you would give to those three questions. Who am I? Where do I fit in? What difference do I make? Whether you've never put much thought into them or whether those questions keep you up at night, I would tell you to take those questions into God's presence. Be honest with him about where you're at right now. Stay there for a while. And listen, as he tells you that you are his beloved son or daughter, that you belong to his family, and that your purpose can be found in his ongoing mission in the world, and that's what makes you you. Let's pray.